This podcast is brought to you by StoreMaven. I won't lie, I am an employee at StoreMaven, so I want to tell you a little bit about why it's the greatest company on earth. If you're interested in growing your app in any way, organically, paid, both, we have tools to help you do it, whether it's optimizing your creatives, measuring the success and the effect of different efforts that you're taking, or just telling you what people look for in an app. We're here to help you do it. I think that a lot of UA folks like that curiosity and they just treat this as a job and they're like, okay, let's just do a Facebook video. I think you can learn a lot of things by just like looking at what others are doing, especially smaller developers and trying to replicate that and apply that at a larger scale. Welcome to Mobile Growth and Pancakes, a podcast by Stormaven. We break down how and why mobile apps grow. In each episode, we invite a mobile growth expert onto the show to break down a specific mobile growth strategy how it worked, why it worked, and what they would do differently. I'm your host, Esther Schatz. Welcome to Mobile Growth and Pancakes. I'm joined today by um, two people. It's actually the first time we've had uh, multiple guests at once, so this is super exciting. Do you guys want to introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Nebo, or my full name is Nebo Sharadovich, for those who can uh, speak Eastern European. Um, I'm a growth lead at Network, um, uh, and uh, I spend most of my time as part of the NSP team, which is basically our publishing platform, helping developers grow their games. All right, now I'm Joe Kim. The, I'm the founder of a small mobile gaming studio that is actually going to be focused on uh, developing a new mobile shooter game out of India, but I also uh, have a podcast and YouTube channel as well. Awesome. So, uh, you know, before we jump into our, our hot topics for today, Nebo Joe, how do you guys know each other? Uh, you know, what's the connection between the two of you? I forgot how we met, Nemo. Was it? It might have been through a Slack channel, but I don't remember it was an event or slack or something yeah i think we actually uh met for the first time when we did the the, the first game makers podcast okay uh in person no or maybe the nordiest product breakfast okay. uh gdc uh but you know we've been part of like similar slack or like same slack communities for a while and and then we started doing podcasts and we're kind of like a band at this point uh we're doing a lot of content together and you know it was great to work with joe so I think what's what's interesting about you guys is generally when you see these kinds of uh, you know tight connections, you're you know sort of in the same exact uh, sphere. But Joe, your focus has really been product, where Nevo, you're more on the growth side. Um, so I guess it would be interesting. Where where's the synergy there? How do you guys connect? How do these two teams connect? Well, I would say that I think in general to be successful in mobile gaming. I think you need a uh, an understand a, a broader understanding of the things that are important to help you achieve success in mobile games. So, so my you know so in terms of my career, I've been primarily focused on product. But having said that, you know, just kind of you know as I kind of you know developed in my career, I understood that it became important to kind of have a you know broader understanding of all the things that are important. So. And then at our at the last company I was with, I kind of oversaw both product and, and marketing, so it was important for me to understand that side as well. Yeah, it's it's a similar story. I just wanted to add. It's basically you need kind of both functions at their like best in order to become really successful. Uh, and the, the the challenge with just being UA focused or just being product focused is that you hit the ceiling pretty fast, and then you kind of help. Each, like both teams have to help each other 
kind of unlock the next kind of growth opportunities. Um, so, you know, if the game is like not casual enough, that's where a product steps in and makes things that make the game more accessible. Or if the game is accessible enough, but doesn't have enough like users in the game, that's when UA steps in and helps the game grow further. And in order to build like a really successful, like multi hundreds of millions of dollars game, you kind of need both functions to be at their best in order to, to, to get there. And that's why it's not just enough to be great at UA or to be great at product, you need both. Um, and that's, that's, I think we're pretty aligned on that. And that's how we started basically uh, doing podcasts and talking about these things. I guess when it comes to kind of starting off, uh, you know, I, I like what you said about this, uh, you know, kind of product needs to step in when the, the challenge is product-based, UA needs to step in when, when the challenge is UA-based, but where do you begin? I mean, if we're looking at a new app, are you focusing on developing something based on market appeal and, and starting on the marketing side, figuring out where that is and developing around that? Or do you start with a phenomenal product and then, you know, kind of tweak the marketing around that? I think it's pretty situational, right? And so depending on the kind of product that you're that you're working on and what are the bases of competition in that market, I think that would kind of dictate where you spend your specific focus. But generally speaking, I, I would say, yeah, that uh, today it's important to the, to the point about having product understanding and understanding about growth and testing and that the, the kind of skills that marketers have to help inform product. It, it's kind of important to know both, but uh, I do think that there are a lot of things that people can do, regardless of the product, to uh, regardless of the specific game that you're you're making, in which you know it does help to to kind of have understanding of both and to kind of do things that will help validate the product in 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 terms of like a lot of the risks that that you have, right? So like every every product is going to have a different set of risks and. You know, one of the things that I would encourage a lot of game developers to do is just to try to understand what those key risks are. And then depending on what those risks are, whether it's more marketing focused or product focused to focus on trying to validate those risks. Makes sense. Do you have an example of a, you know, if we're, you know, kind of opening up a risk, how you how you tackle that from those sides? Yeah. So let's say that you are working on in a, a in a already proven genre. And what you're trying to do is you're actually trying to just add a you know a, a different type of type of IP or art style to differentiate the game. Then in that case, I would say that um, that marketing is probably more important here in, in the sense of like trying to do a lot of market tests to try and validate whether you know you're going to have strong IPMs, whether that specific IP matched with the gameplay that's proven actually resonates with the type of players that you're going after. And so in, from that perspective, I would say where product can help is, is trying to help determine the type of audience that would be playing that game. And then marketing would be very useful in the sense of trying to then target those types of players and running the tests that will help determine whether the top of funnel metrics are going to be strong enough or not. And then product needs to also you know, weigh in to also make sure that, you know, whether when, when you do bring those players in, that the type of tests and the types of validation that you're doing so that those players are actually converting and helping the game monetize are, are actually there or not. Anybody, I don't know if you have any specific thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I would just add this is like also pretty company specific. Like if you're Supercell, you might not care about marketing as much and because they're so good at making games that, that you know, that are very accessible and, are played by millions of people all over the world. 
or all across the world. Um, and but you know, for most developers, it's important to kind of validate the the kind of the the art style, the theme of the game early, so you basically save some time and make sure that you know uh, the game you launch to the worldwide audience uh, has the kind of highest chances to succeed. Um, and I think the key point here is something that uh, JK mentioned, which is basically: is there any overlap between IP and, and the theme and the audience you're going after? If your game is too uh, too hardcore and your uh, art style slash um, IP that you're working with is too too uh, casual, there's a chance that the audience that you're driving in the game with your ads might not be the the audience that you want in the game. And that will have probably have a negative impact on the retention, on monetization, and pretty much all the major, both like UA and like mostly like product metrics, because on the UA front, uh, everything's going to look great, uh, but on the product side, might not look that great. And that's when um, that's where the product and the UA team have to work together to understand where is the disconnect and what are the things you you have to do either on the UA side or the product side to to increase the chances of success. But probably the other thing to add there is that for some games, it, the risks are going to be different, right? And so it might be you're introducing a new control scheme. So the control scheme might be the major risk for the game, or it might be the monetization system, like a new monetization system map with gameplay, right? And that's basically what the Japanese do. They do a, you know, like something cross something. So they'll take gameplay from you know, game X and monetization system from game Y, and they just do crosses, right? And so like... Again, it just depends on what the risk for the game is, but that's something that I would highly recommend that uh, game studios do is for the game that you're developing, understand what are the key risks, and then from there, then leverage your product and marketing team to understand, well, then how can we try to help better characterize what the risk is, risk is and to try to validate or mitigate those risks for the game? And I mean, I'd, I'd imagine also those risks will change over time, right? When you're a legacy, long-standing title, your risks are going to inherently shift versus what they were at launch. You know, launch some, there's going to be something about breaking into, say, an overly saturated market and how do you make yourself known versus when you're a longer-standing title, maybe it's more how do we stay relevant off apps that have, uh, you know, newer hype and everything like that. Yeah, and I think... I Understanding like what the risks are and how to mitigate those risks or characterize those risks is, I think, the hardest part about game development. And one of the things that I think is probably not done very well by the majority of game studios out there. And not, not, I'm not saying that I'm a master at it as well, but we're, we're actually putting a lot of resources into figuring that out. And then I think the other thing to understand is that to your point about how risk changes, it also changes from with respect to your game development process as well, because there may, there may be a set of risks that you try to characterize during pre-production, but, and then during production, one of the new things that we've done is we've now set monthly validation goals where we're running exper like a major experiment or prototype against a risk every month. But depending on how those go, that will then have knock on dependencies in terms of, okay, well, like, so take that, uh, you know, control scheme example, let's say the control scheme sucks. Well, then now that all of a sudden changes the, you know, sort, sort of product roadmap, how we kind of deal with this product. Do we kill the product? Do we change the control scheme? Um, you know, so like, depending on what the risks are and the, and the prototypes that, that you deploy and the new information that you gain, 
that's going to change the kind of risk moving forward to, to, to your point about changing risks. Yeah, I'd like just to add one more thing on, uh, uh, on uh, about like market conditions and uh, for live games. I mean, the market changes all the time on the UA front as well. So for live games, sometimes it gets increasingly uh, harder to promote those games, which is when, um, when games need to pivot, even the live ones. And um, I, I always like mention this example of Lord Mobile, which is like, you know, which has been uh, advertising pretty aggressively for like quite some time now. And there's not that many games that were, they have been able to do that. And part of the reason why they're so successful at it is that they kept changing the game and changing the kind of visual appeal of the game in order to be able to continuously deploy UA dollars. And I think that's when kind of market conditions come into play on the UA front. It's at some point, you know, you just cannot continue spending money and growing the game without changing the game significantly and understanding what are the current kind of uh, market conditions. To give you an example, you know, Facebook introduced VO and AAA now like ads. So they're changing the way you can buy on Facebook all the time, which means that sometimes you need to change the game to address those uh, UI, uh, UA, UA changes. And, uh, and that's, that's one product in UA um, really should work together to understand what's the opportunity there and how they can get the most out of it. So it's a great point you're bringing up, um, you know, kind of the different Facebook targeting optimizations. And I think one of the ways that product in UA had this really nice synergy was, you know, bringing in users tied to specific, you can call them product KPIs. I mean, ROAS, I think, is one of those metrics that is half product, half UA, right? It's, it's bringing in the right users and making sure that the right actions take place. Obviously, and I'm sure this isn't the first time you've talked about it, IDFA is, uh, you know, just around the corner. This is, uh, I would say, if we're talking market conditions, probably the biggest shift that we've seen in uh, in quite some time. You know, does this change the way? Basically, I, I guess uh, there's a lot of questions to ask here, and I know nobody knows. But if we're looking at UA in the future and moving forward and being able to set these KPIs and tie these to, you know, validate that UA is bringing the right audience for product. How does that work when we can't track them all the way through? Well, I mean, I think this underscores Nevo's point, right, which is to say that, you know, based upon environmental changes in the industry, that that should have an impact on product. And so, you know, the way that we've been approaching it, my studio is to try and, you know, basically try to trace route through what the implications are if, uh, if IDFA deprecation, for example, has the impact of not enabling studios to target whales. And so... If we believe that's the case, and so you no longer have those players that will be spending $10,000, $100,000 in the game, then what would the impact of that be? And if the impact is to basically shift payer buckets down, right? So if you're looking at your, your player payer base, and if you were to characterize them in terms of payer buckets, and then to try and understand what would happen if we try to shift the payer buckets down, but then being able to offset that in some way through it to maintain our revenue, then the, the way that you could potentially do that is by using more of a supercell based approach, right? Which is to lower our poo-poo, but increase conversion. And so then if, if that's the case, then you have to think about the monetization schemes and mechanics in your game such that you can enable that to happen, right? So if you're trying to go for broader conversion and uh, basically that lower ARPU-PU, then what can you do that makes sense in the context of the game that you have? And so that, in my opinion, is would then be one of these situations to, to Nebo's point where you have 
your marketing team that can help you understand how you're going to be able to target and what's possible in the product team to then understand, well, from a monetization perspective, how do we map what is possible from a targeting perspective to what we try to do from a monetization perspective in game? And so, you know, I, I think that that's, uh, this is kind of a live example of this kind of product marketing synergy being brought to bear against a current, you know, big change in the market coming up. I think that's super interesting, actually, that, you know, I've obviously been listening to a lot and uh, and researching a lot. I don't think it's the most popular track, which is product also has to adjust. It's not just about how do we bring in the right users. It's these are the users we're bringing in. This is the goal that we've set for UA. How do we use the product side now to match and, and meet in the middle? I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I'll just add that, you know, one more thing that, that that's an interesting opportunity for product and UA to work together is conversion value design. It's basically figuring out which events uh, should be passed to our networks and how to optimize against those. I don't think if, if like uh, uh, UA and the product teams are siloed that, you know, you can do that successfully or the companies can do that successfully. Um, so, so that's yet another example of why these two teams should work together. And uh, as JK said, uh, I think it's going to be super, super important understanding what type of users can you bring in the game in the post-IDFA world. And, and, uh, and optimizing the game to address that uh, is going to be crucial. So if you cannot really target whales and, uh, and go after high, high value players, then that means that you have to you know, uh, make your games potentially more, more casual, focus more on like hybrid casual titles and like mid-core and hardcore, um, or to revert your like UA strategy back to like the ones that were used in 2015 or 2014, where uh, you optimize only at you know, the pub level and not rely so much on kind of machine learning based algorithms. Um, but again, that also means that the game needs to be changed and, and, and that, you know, we need to kind of use every available lever to, to, uh, to help the game succeed. I mean, I think definitely there's, there's uh, the, the flashback side of, we have a KPI that we can still measure, which is the conversion side, but we just don't know what kind of value that's bringing in, I guess, how do you, you know, what's, what's the right process to analyze what, you know, IDFA starts, we've changed our, our campaign goal to optimize for conversion for CPI, what have you. How do we kind of validate what's happening now on the product side? How do we see what that user base is that's being brought in in order to create the right accommodations? Yeah, I, th I think, um, I mean, the Android is still, still you know, there. So we can always use Android to try to understand, like, when it comes to, you know, for example, creative performance. And if you want to, if you want to measure how different types of creatives um, uh, perform, uh, then, you know, we can, we can still leverage Android. Um, when it comes to, when it comes to kind of understanding like different, how different channels perform, uh, or like different geos perform, I think a key will be in kind of campaign, um, campaign key will be to understand campaign setup properly and what, how to get the most out of SK network. So basically you cannot really target super granularly, but, uh, you potentially, you know, design different country tiers and try to like group as many countries as possible together to get the most out of SK network and to try to prevent the data loss and then to like learn that way. But I, I feel like most of those workarounds won't work and that we'll still have to rely A on Android, B on potentially things like Stormhaven, you know, just to understand like what's the conversion, what are, what's the conversion rate of, of like certain creatives and certain art styles. And then to try to kind of 
extrapolate those values and understand what's the impact on the game. Um, but you know, it, we're still we, it's really hard to to make any predictions about these things before uh, we enter the post IDFA world. And and I think we're just like trying to creatively solve the problem. But um, you know, uh, there's a there's a famous saying: everybody has a strategy, and until that they get hit in the head. I think it's Mike Tyson or someone. So I think we have to get hit in our face first and then we'll probably come up with a smart solution. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I, I hear that. I think there has to be some, some trial and error. I do think, you know, we have Google. The question is how long we'll have Google because, uh, you know, often Android, you know, one, one platform makes the move, the other platform follows at some point. Do you see performance marketing changing kind of fundamentally? I know we can't predict what happens with the IDFA, but do you think, Kind of the model of how we look at it needs to change. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we talked about this in one of the Yoyo Coffee podcasts um, um, about uh, data plus plus, product plus plus, and um, and media buying plus plus uh, kind of team members. Um, basically, the every single function will have to evolve and understand what the post IDFA world looks like. Um, uh, for data plus plus, I think the UA people who focus on data will have to understand or work with data primarily. So think about like UA data analysts and UA analysts will have to understand, you know, how to do incrementality and lift studies, where the users are coming from, um, you know, what are the best pockets of, of traffic and how to get the most out of those. Uh, when it comes to product plus plus, um, it's basically product marketing people. They'll have to, they'll have to understand again, like what are the kind of available levers on the product side and how can how they can help the, the media buying team and the data team to make the best possible decisions. And the last, the, the last kind of piece of the puzzle there is like people doing actual media, buy, media buying process will have to understand both like data and, and the product side of things to, to try to like come up with the, the most successful UA strategy and, and get the most out of, um, out of the, the available channels. So I think each one of these functions will have to kind of adjust to this new world in order to succeed and, that's probably going to take a few months. Um, uh, not sure, Joe, do you have anything else to add? Yeah, uh, underlying this, I think the other thing that UA marketers are going to have to start to develop in terms of skills is essentially first structured thinking, right? Because I, I think too many marketers up to this point have gotten, you know, I, I think Nebo's mentioned it before that some people got lazy because of Facebook and because of the machine learning algorithms and being able to re rely on the platforms to do a lot of your work for you. And so, the important thing is with a lot of change that occurs in the industry to be able to try and, and uh, structure your thinking in a way that you're approaching different problems that you haven't seen before in very good ways. And then I think the other thing is uh, along those lines to, as you were mentioning before about you know trial and error, that it's very important to have some type of experimentation framework, right? And then to be able to structure that framework in a way that makes sense. And so I 100% agree with Nebo. I'm a big fan of his framework, but I would say underlying that to then build some of this type of thinking, as well as probably also just more quantitative skills, because I, I think that regardless of which way things go, I, I think it's going to be important. I've seen too many marketers with not great, like whether it's, you know, Excel skills or, you know, and, and you know, just and continue to develop. So whether you build skill in, you know, R or Python or whatever, I think that helps. I think, you know, it's interesting in a way, it's kind of bringing uh, performance marketing towards what a lot of organic growth teams have been sort of trying to structure their way about, which is you've never really had those tracking capabilities in organics. I think 
I don't think it, you know, anybody thinks organics fall out of the sky and are just a gift, uh, you know, coming in They're they're a result of something. And I think I've, I've seen at least a lot with, uh, with the partners that we work with, that there's been a big push in the last couple of years to structure some kind of experimentation framework. Like you said, basically, how do we create a clean enough experiment environment? Obviously we still have you know, one, one funnel to bring users into the app at the end of the day of, you know, kind of store to download, but we, we have many, many options. Once we get there, how do we create the right framework for being able to assess things like, you know, uh, more branding efforts, uh, different keyword and and design optimization efforts that don't have that direct tie-in. So, I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I totally agree with what both of you are saying, which is there's this kind of a need to shift fundamentally, but also never to let go of the fact. It doesn't mean that we're not database, uh, you know, the database optimization isn't the way to go. It doesn't mean that tying KPIs into the, you know, KPIs into everything you do and crossing the different teams is is irrelevant because we're in this, uh, you know, kind of impossible scenario. It's just shifting that perspective. Yeah, I think it's important to mention that, you know, we're going to, UA might become what TV, you know, TV attribution is right now. Like, or the way we attribute like UA installs might be similar to what kind of per- brand performance or performance brand marketers are doing uh, where it, you know, it's important to understand like, you know, organic baselines, like, you know, how many installs are coming from like a different geo each day. And then to try to attribute, you know, like the, 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 the incremental installs and revenue to paid UA efforts. So, so I think this is, this is where, you know, having some skills and buying like uh uh, buying brand um, uh, media uh, will will make or not brand yeah basically buying offline media will come uh, handy because you know these people who have been doing this especially buying like TV TV ads uh, understand this really well and you know the future might be more similar to that than to what we're doing right now. Right. Yeah. And I, I think the other, one comment that I think uh, one of our other buddies John Lau had mentioned is that it's going to be increasingly important for. UA people to actually not think of themselves as UA marketers, but mainly be thinking about themselves in terms of growth. And now in terms of a growth function, whether that means, you know, being integrated with product or whatever, whatever it takes to drive growth of the product is how UA marketers need to increasingly think of themselves kind of moving into the future. And going back to structured thinking, when you start thinking about yourself in terms of growth, then it's going to be that structured thinking and those skills around structured thinking that allows you to build that growth framework, right? Because it's going to be situational for every company for the type of product that you have, but being able to situationally create what is, you know, the growth framework that allows us to really deep dive on our product, understand where those levers are that can actually help drive the most growth and, and, you know, have the biggest impact of the product and then to isolate and drive against those initiatives that will actually help increase the product the most. All right, you guys ready to move on to the uh, quick fire round? Let's do it. All right. First of all, what is your, you give one and only one tip to an aspiring growth marketer, what would it be? I would say to build a skills matrix for your career. This is uh, basically trying to understand what are the skills that will allow you to be successful, kind of thinking one step ahead. And then to start trying to develop your personal skills against that skills matrix so that you can be as competitive as possible in the future. Yeah, I'll be more more generic and just say that, you know, just be curious and, and try to, like, treat this as a calling and not a job. Uh, you know, play as many games as possible. Look what other advertisers are doing. Uh, try to understand why are they doing that and uh, 
and try to implement that in your kind of day-to-day -day, um, work. Um, I, I think that a lot of UA folks like that curiosity and they just treat this as a job and they're like, okay, let's just do a Facebook video, which is what JK said earlier. And, and you know, things are going to look great. I think you can learn a lot of things by just like looking at what others are doing, especially smaller developers and trying to replicate that and apply that at a larger scale. Wasn't so generic. I haven't heard uh, haven't heard it exactly like that yet. Um, what's your favorite growth resource and why? So maybe I could give two answers to this. I would say that the first resources I you know I'm a big fan of uh, Eric Sufert's blog, um, Mobile Dev Memo. But I, I would say the other resource is just talking to guys like me. But right, so like <laughs> being able to like I I think it really is talking to people about like the key issues in the industries and having those kind of deeper conversations. I I think is probably where I learned the most. My answers are similar. Um, I mean, Eric is, you know, I, I don't think he, he gets a lot of credit, but I think he gets enough credit for everything that he's been doing for like, he's so consistent. He writes every single week and that's really, really hard. I mean, I started my blog in 2005 and I've been a very sloppy blogger and I know what it's like to be consistent and what it takes. So, um, you know, you cannot really not mention Eric. Uh, there's like quite a few interesting like blogs and newsletters nowadays. I think Grow, uh, Grow Code newsletter is pretty good if you want to be on top of the news. Um, uh, there's a Mobile Grow Gems um, newsletter, weekly newsletter, and also Thomas Petit uh, started his own newsletter, who's like a great, great uh, mobile growth leader. So you should follow him as well on Twitter. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to be different than Joe. So. <laughs> All right. You can't say each other. Who's uh, one person from the industry that you want to take to lunch when uh, taking people to lunch actually is an option again? Yeah, it's a, I, I thought about that question when I saw the kind of outline for the podcast. And it, the thing is, like, the UA community in the U.S. is very kind of, like, it's pretty connected. We all know each other and we hang out quite often. We used to hang out quite often, uh, not anymore, uh, except for, like, Zoom meetings. Uh, but I'd love to meet some senior growth guys. I, I never actually met in person, like J Josh Hellman, who's a, who's a pretty senior like product guy. And uh, I'd also love to to meet for lunch uh, Ari Papara from Beeswax. He's one of the the, the kind of most vocal ad tech leaders in the industry. And yeah, I, th those two, uh, I, I haven't met them in person. And, and I think it'd be interesting to like grab lunch with them. Yeah, I would say for me, I would say whoever ran the... The loot, the Twitch loot drops campaign for Valorant. I'd like to have lunch with that person. Nice. I don't know the name for you, so hopefully they're listening and they can reach out and uh, and uh, set that up. Okay. Most important question: What is your favorite flavor of pancake? You know, I didn't even know there was multiple flavors. Is isn't there just one? <laughs> oh yeah, you have not been to the right pancake house. <laughs> We have to kind of, we have to kind of, you know, add more details to this question. Are we talking about pancakes or crepes, um, American pancakes, or the the ones that you make in pan, like the French crepes? Well, I'll say because I'm an American expat, so I I do have a love of American pancake, but that thin, thin kind of crepe or bellini is uh is definitely fair game, um, and I'd say. So you can expand it through the the toppings. You know, you've got like the banana chocolate pancake. You've got Nutella. You've got blueberry. You know, there's there's a whole. I would say regular, but yeah, I'm a fan of Nutella. So maybe maybe Nutella then. Maybe you haven't had a Nutella pancake, and that's the real issue. 
I'm uh, I'm quite an expert when it comes to French grapes, um, uh, which uh, which you could uh, say by my weight. Um, uh, I love them, and you know they're very common in Serbia, where I'm coming from. So I'd suggest you to try uh, French grape with tart cherry and hazelnut. Um, they're great, um, and hazelnut gives you the crunchiness, and tart cherry just give you the tart flavor. So next time, and Nutella, of course. Sorry, Nutella is like uh, comes with everything. So. Next time you go to a crepe house, uh, try that. It's pretty good. Good tip. All right, guys, where can people find you if they want to, you know, learn more, follow up on what you're doing? I would say for me, probably the Deconstructor of Fun podcast or the Game Makers YouTube channel. Uh, for me, Twitter uh, or LinkedIn, uh, just like, you know, search for my, na- my name, um, twitter.com slash ENIAC or E-N-I-A-C. Uh, and yeah, so let's uh, follow each other there. Awesome. Guys, thank you so much. And I know it's a pretty earlier morning. So thank you for waking up uh, without pancakes to, uh, to take the time to chat. It was awesome. And that was Mobile Growth and Pancakes. To find out more about StoreMaven and how we can improve app store performance, visit StoreMaven.com. And then make sure to search for Mobile Growth and Pancakes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. And click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at StoreMaven, Thanks for listening.